All right, hey, we are glad that you're here at Seven Hills Fellowship this morning, and uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called A Life Well Lived, and what we're really doing is we're looking at the book of Proverbs, and uh, some of you who have been at Seven Hills for very long now know that we are a church that doesn't give you a lot of to-do, right, a lot of stuff to do, and that's very, very intentional. Um, Again, as I mentioned before, religion is always, um, you know, what I can do to please God, that's not Christianity. Christianity is always what God has done through Jesus to, to satisfy himself. Does that make sense? That's the good news of the gospel. So fundamentally, Christianity isn't about, it's not a doing religion uh, in terms of earning God's favor. However, there is a real sense in which when you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at the Proverbs, there really is a real sense in which what Christianity does is it has a life that it prescribes. And the reason it prescribes a certain life is because fundamentally, Part of what Christianity is doing is trying to restore humanity back to its original glory. Does that make sense? And so you can look at homelessness or addiction of any sorts, and you can look at those people, and you can see them, and you can say those people have dignity, they have worth, they have nobility in them because they're created in the image of God, and yet they're broken, right? And those are really um, extreme examples. It's an extreme example to talk about homelessness. It's an extreme example to talk about psychological brokenness. It's an extreme example to talk about addiction, right? But the truth is every single one of us in this room is broken, right? We might just be broken in more private ways, um, or we might be broken in ways that are more socially acceptable, but we're broken too. And so part of what the gospel seeks to do, part of what the Ten Commandments seeks to do, part of what Proverbs seeks to do is to restore that nobility to humanity, right? It's, it's, it's seeking to redeem and restore us. And so there is a sense in which we are called to live a certain life and not to earn God's favor, but rather to experience what it looks like to really flourish as human beings. That's part of what God desires for us. And so in this series called A Life Well Lived, that's what we're doing. So we've taken a look at how the Proverbs addresses our speech and our language, right? This is very, very important for our culture because we have, we're living in a culture right now where words are thrown out there via Twitter and via Facebook and via Instagram and, you know, talk radio. And there's a ton of vitriol. There's a ton of perversity, frankly. And, uh, and part of what the Proverbs does is it gives us um, some, some guidelines for how to use our speech, right? So we talked about our speech. We also talked about relationships. The Proverbs has a lot. Sorry, a lot to say about relationships. It has a lot to say about, you know, warnings about particular relationships, but it has a lot to say about encouragements about particular relationships. Anybody in here who's a parent understands just how important those relationships are for our children. Anybody who has the slightest bit of self-awareness has an idea of the importance of relationships in your own life, whether that was in junior high, high school, college, or even as adults. Uh, we talked about um, trusting in God. That's one of the other big themes of the book of Proverbs is that Proverbs encourages us to remember that, that ultimately God is the engineer of humanity, right? He's the author of humanity. And so ultimately God is the one that has the ability to tell us how life will work best. And so the Proverbs talks about trusting in God and how when we trust in God, we have a life that is well lived, right? That Proverbs talks over and over again. If you trust in me, you'll have a long life. If you trust in me, you'll have a good life. If you trust in me, then you'll avoid all these horrible pitfalls, and, it, and really that idea of trusting in God is in opposition to trusting in ourselves, which is the way of the fool in Proverbs. And Proverbs makes the point that uh, if you trust in yourself, there's a way that seems right to a man, but leads to death. And so Proverbs is warning us to trust God and, and to be cautious about trusting ourselves when trusting ourselves is in opposition to trusting in him. Today, 
we're talking about another topic, which for me is totally theoretical, right? It's not something I've ever struggled with personally. Probably none of you have either, but it's the idea of anger, right? And uh, I'm obviously being facetious there. Um, but the Proverbs addresses um, all the elements of our humanity, but one of the elements it addresses is this idea of anger. So before um, we jump into this, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that as we hear uh, the words of Proverbs today, I pray that um, we would let them sink down through our heads and into our hearts. Uh, I pray that, um, that even these Proverbs, which are um, in, on some level moralistic in the sense they're telling us how to live life, I pray that we would look at these Proverbs not as a way to earn your affection, uh, but rather as a way by which we can experience full and true and flourishing humanity, not only for us, uh, but for those who are in relationship with us as well. Father, I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, and I pray that your Spirit would guide us into all truth. I pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm going to start by showing you a little video clip um, that is kind of cute. It's not the funniest thing in the world, but it's kind of cute. But it's about a little guy. It's a, it's a video of a little guy who's throwing a temper tantrum, and his parents are filming it. But um, basically what you see as he pitches this temper tantrum is that he's very clearly doing it in a way because he's trying to communicate something to his parents. So I'll just turn it over to the, the video clip. All right. So I stopped right there, but that little video clip uh, went on for like, I don't know, five minutes or so. And the kid does the same thing over and over and over again, where as soon as his, he doesn't see his parents anymore, he stops. And then he walks into it until he sees his parents. And then he you know, pitches the fit again. He's obviously trying to communicate his anger, right, about some uh, injustice. You know, why can't I have more Cheerios? You know, why can't I watch more Thomas the Tank Engine? Who knows what it is, right? Uh, but, you know, you look at that little clip of, of this, you know, little toddler throwing a temper tantrum, and it's kind of funny. But the reality is that anger is very, very serious business, right? You know, it's interesting. America right now, there's all sorts of psychological testing and sociological testing that goes on that shows that anger in America is on the rise. There's an article uh, recently that came out on the BBC.com website by a woman named Vanessa Barford, and uh, the title of the, of the uh, article is called, Why Are Americans So Angry, right? Why are Americans so angry? Let me read a little, little section of this. She says this, Americans are generally known for having a positive outlook on life, but with the countdown for November's presidential election now well underway, by the way, I do have a picture of her right here. That's not her, sorry. I just thought it was funny. Sorry, that's not Vanessa Barford, but it's just such a funny picture I had to put it on there. Anyway, so she says, you can, you can move off that now. Anyway, she says, people in America are angry. And she says, this may explain the success of non-mainstream candidates such as Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Bernie Sanders. A CNN poll carried out in December 2015 shows that 69% of Americans are either very angry or somewhat, somewhat angry about the way things are going in the U.S. In other words, all the research shows that anger in America is on the rise. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit more of this in a second. Basically, what sociologists say is that depending on your culture, there are corporate cultures like Eastern cultures, Korea, Japan, uh, parts of Asia. There are individualistic cultures. America is an individualistic culture. But anger always rises in an individualistic culture, and it's suppressed in a corporate culture. And the reason that anger rises in an individualistic culture is in an individualistic culture, it's all about me, it's all about my rights, it's all about my entitlements. And when those entitlements aren't met, then you get angry, right? And so what the sociologists say is that in this individualistic culture of the United States of America, 
just expect anger to go further and further and further up kind of through the roof. Vanessa Barford continues her article by saying this, candidates, that is the presidential candidates, have sensed the mood and are adopting the rhetoric. Donald Trump, who has arguably tapped into voters' frustration better than any other candidate, says that he is very, very angry and will gladly accept the mantle of anger while rival Republican, this was written before some people fell out, Ben Carson says he's encountered many Americans who are discouraged and angry as they watch the American dream slipping away. Democratic presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders says, I'm angry, and millions of Americans are angry, while Hillary Clinton says that she understands why people are angry, right? And so, again, part of what's happening here is these outside candidates for president have tapped into the, the increasing and growing anger of Americans, right? And, uh, and again, our culture is really fostering a place where we're going to become more and more angry for any number of different reasons. Now, unresolved anger, unresolved anger, anger that's not handled appropriately, whether that's anger about our wife or anger about our husband or anger with our children or anger with our boss or anger with a fellow employee or anger about politics or anger about any number of different things, if it's unresolved, if you don't deal with that anger well, then it leads to this laundry list of unhealthy things. It leads to depression, right? It can lead to anxiety. Unresolved anger can lead to sleep disorders, high blood pressure, increased risk of heart disease and stroke. And as we all know, unresolved anger can destroy the relationships that we have with those that we love the most, right? Because those are the people that can hurt us the most. And so our anger towards them is the most. It's uh, very much correlative. Now, let me ask this question really quickly. The question is this, what is anger? What is anger? And is it bad? Is it good or is it bad? So Tim Keller gives us a very helpful definition of anger. It's this. He says that anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil, right? You may want to take that down. It's a pretty good definition. Anger is energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. In other words, when anger is used appropriately or in its proper manifestation, then it's a perfectly good thing, right? This explains why God and Jesus are both angry, why we've seen them angry in Scripture, right? And so let me, let me, you may hear me say that, and you might go, that's not very loving to be angry, right? I thought Jesus was the guy that carried around sheep on felt boards and stuff like that. Listen to what Becky Pippert says um, on anger, and this is a, a great quote, and, and parents understand this, I think, maybe as much as anyone else. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How can a deity who's perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved, right? Love, by definition, detests and is angered by what destroys the beloved. Parents get that. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Nearly a century ago, the theologian E.H. Glifford wrote, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. How can a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? Oh, never mind, boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. 
No, to be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. Does that make sense? In other words, anger, back to Keller's definition, is energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. In other words, anger is perfectly good, right? When it's used correctly, when it's exercised properly, it's absolutely, absolutely correct. In fact, it is perfectly consistent, not only with a loving God, but it's perfectly consistent with a loving spouse when that spouse's marriage is threatened by pornography or infidelity, right? That anger is, is perfectly in line with love when a loving parent sees brokenness in their children and knows that that thing the child is struggling with might destroy or might harm them. That's, that's actually perfectly appropriate. It's perfectly consistent not only with God, not only with Jesus, but it's consistent with us as well. In fact, it would be wrong for us not to be angry. Okay, let me, let me read a couple things here. John Chrysostom, early church father, says this, he that is angry without cause sins, right? We know that. There are times where we see inappropriate anger, right? We misperceive what our spouse has done to us. We misperceive what our roommate has done to us. We misperceive what a coach has done for uh, to us. We misperceive what some politician intends, right? And so that's why he says, he that is angry without uh, cause sins, but then he goes on to say, he that is not angry when there is a cause sins, right? Slavery, racism, sexual crimes and sins, things that destroy humanity. He goes on to say, unreasonable patience is the hotbed of many sins, right? Some of you may take pride in the fact that you don't ever get angry. That would have been me. But part of what you don't understand is that when you don't experience anger, something actually is probably broken within you because there is absolutely an appropriate anger. That's why God can be angry. It's why Jesus can be angry. It's why a loving father, mother, husband, or wife can be angry. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, give some clear direction on this. They say, be angry, and in the Greek, that is an imperative, right? That means it's a command. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, be angry, but when you're angry, be be calm, right? Um, Think through it, right? Don't give full vent to your anger. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. And then it goes on to basically say you've got to resolve it. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, I'm going to give you a cheesy slogan that is hard for me to utter because it's so cheesy, and I have a hard time with this. But it's going to be good. It's going to help you remember it. So I'm going to do it for the sake of Jesus and for the kingdom, okay? The saying is this, not no anger or blow anger, but slow anger. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. And again, it's cheesy. Not no anger or blow anger, but slow anger. In other words, if you don't experience any anger at all, something's wrong with you, right? That is not the image of God in you because God experiences anger towards injustice and evil, right? Or if you do give full vent to your anger, which the Proverbs addresses, if you give full vent to your anger, that's not good either, right? That just, that's destructive. But ultimately, we're called to, uh, to slow anger, right? It says that God is slow to anger. Now, this is not a sermon on what the Bible teaches about anger. It's a sermon on what Proverbs teaches about anger. Now, like every other um, sort of theme we've covered so far, because the Proverbs is made up of, you know, 64 verses on relationships, you can't cover every single verse. There's a lot that the Proverbs has to say about our temper and anger. And so I'm going to just talk about two points, and, uh, and then I'll turn it over to you guys um, to go to the Proverbs and see what you can find out there. But uh, point number one is this. Point number one is kind of point 1A and point 1B. 
but it's beware the danger of a short fuse, right? So beware the danger of a bad temper or short fuse and remain calm. I'm gonna read a couple verses. Those who are short-tempered do foolish things and schemers are hated. Proverbs 14. Those who control their anger have great understanding. Those with a hasty temper will make mistakes. Last verse. A fool is quick-tempered but a wise person stays calm when insulted, right? There, there really are two sides to this anger coin, at least in these verses. And again, the first side is that it is foolish to become quick-tempered or to act too quickly out of your anger. And the second side of the coin is that it's wise to remain calm either when you're angry or when you're the victim of somebody else's angry outburst. So why is, uh, does the Bible warn us or Proverbs warn us about being quick-tempered, having a short fuse? Why is it so foolish to be quick-tempered? Well, for one, it shows a lack of awareness of your own heart and the consequences of your own temper. So a lack of awareness in your own heart. Anger fundamentally is always a secondary emotion, right? What it is, is it's a fire that demonstrates some, uh, a smoke that demonstrates a fire within, right? It's, it's ultimately about something deeper and it clues you into that, right? And so, that's, so one, it shows a lack of awareness. But the second thing uh, and the second reason it's wrong to be quick-tempered is because of the consequences of your quick temper. Now, let me just call time out here really quickly and say this. We've all lost our temper, right? I don't think there's anybody in here who hasn't lost their temper before. Almost always, when you lose your temper, almost always, immediately or very soon after, you regret what it is that you've said or what it is that you've done, right? Because very often what you've said or done is foolish, right? Or you're like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish that I could do the, you know, unsend my text or unsend my email. I do think they have software that does that now. Whatever. Anyway, but again, we regret it when we, uh, when we lose our temper too quickly because very often we do foolish things. Quick illustration. This is actually from Yahoo News, right? So reputable news source. Um, but it's about a 9-11 chicken McNugget phone call. Okay, so I'm going to just read the article. So, in 2009, a 27-year-old woman from Fort Pierce, Florida, walked into a McDonald's restaurant and ordered a 10-piece McNuggets meal. You know how it is when you're hungry and you have a taste for something particular. Your imagination starts working and you can almost imagine, uh, you can almost taste those McNuggets right now, right? I don't know if you guys have had a McNugget in the last 20 years or not. They're probably horrible for you, but they taste great, right? They just do. Anyway, goes on to say, well, that's when things got really tough for this hungry woman. The person behind the counter took the order and received payment. The McDonald's employee then discovered that they were out of those bite-sized, warm, tasty McNuggets. The employee told the customer that the restaurant had run out of McNuggets and she would have to get something else from the menu. The customer asked her for her money back. The employee said that all sales are final and she could have a larger priced item from the menu if she wanted, right? McDonald's needs to work on their customer service because she should be able to get her money back. Nevertheless, that wasn't an, an option. The customer got angry, right? Says this, she wanted McNuggets, not a Big Mac, not a McRib, not a quarter pounder. She was angry. This was clearly an emergency and she knew what to do in the case of an emergency. She took out her cell phone and called 911 to complain. Right? You don't know this, but that's originally why 911 was set up. It was for fast food emergencies. Apparently, the 911 workers didn't take her call seriously because the McNugget loving woman called 911 three times to get help. She never got her McNuggets that night, but she did get a ticket from police for misusing 911. Right? So, in other words, 
when you get angry, you do stuff where afterwards you're like, what was I thinking, right? I cannot believe that I did that. Well, I, I totally regret it, right? And we've all been there. We've all been there where we've lost our temper and we've done something that we've immediately regretted. Ambrose Beer says this. He says, speak when you are angry and you will make the best speech that you'll ever regret, right? Speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. You know, again, I, again, I don't know how many of you have flown off the handle and told it like it is to your wife or to your husband or the teacher or to your friend. But again, you say some things and some of those things are true, but a lot of those things are hurtful. And very quickly afterwards, you're like, oh, I really wish that I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't said it that way, right? Uh, Marcus Aurelius, in his um, paper Meditation, says this, how much more grievous are the consequences of anger than the causes of it, right? Just think about the times you've lost your temper with someone you love. You know, very often it's about something that's small, but it's usually the accumulation maybe of lots of small things, but oftentimes the eruption of anger from you is far worse than the actual causes of whatever brought that anger into your life. I, I could give you story after story after story of situations, usually with my children, usually with Sam, my oldest child, because unfortunately when he was young and growing up, I was um, less mature than I am right now, a lot less healthy. I had a bad temper. And I could just tell you story after story after story of losing my temper with him. And, uh, and in the short term, usually very quickly afterwards, I felt so sorry, and I really regretted those things that I exposed him to, that he had to endure, you know, that were just him being a kid. Um, not only did I regret them pretty immediately, but I regret them to this day, you know. And, uh, and so, again, that's what having a short fuse ultimately gets you. It gets you um, a deep feeling of regret almost immediately. So one of the main reasons that we avoid a quick temper is so that in our anger, um, we don't do or say things that we soon regret. Another reason that we would uh, beware or be wary of having a short fuse is that we don't, wanna, we don't really want to hurt those that we love, right? And those hurts have long-term consequences, right? When we hurt our children because of our bad temper, when we hurt our wives or our husbands because of our bad temper, when we hurt our coworkers, those hurts have long-term consequences. And so we're told in the Proverbs to beware of having a short fuse. We're also told to remain calm, and that's sort of the second part of this. Why is it wise to remain calm? Why, why does that make sense? The outburst being directed at you, right, or that you're experiencing um, almost always has its roots in something that has preceded you or has preceded that person, or at least it has its roots in something that would really be helpful for you to understand and possibly address. So why is it we remain calm? The reason we remain calm is because when you get angry, right, or you experience someone who is getting angry, then fundamentally what's happening is something's going on in their heart. They're feeling unchosen. They're feeling unloved. They're feeling disrespected, right? They're feeling hurt. Maybe they're feeling ridiculed, and their anger is sort of the flash that comes out of that. When you experience anger, the reason to remain calm is because you need to dig down in your heart to find out what's going on, right? When you're dealing with somebody who's angry, if you can remain calm, that's great because fundamentally what you need to do is you need to try to get into their heart and figure out why it is that their anger has flashed, what's the deeper thing going on there. There's a psychologist who writes for psychology uh, today. His name is Leo Seltzer. He's got his PhD in psychiatry. And uh, he has written any number of articles there on psychology today. But one of them that I read was called Anger Always Makes Sense. Anger Always Makes Sense. I'm going to read 
a little section of this article. He says this, if in the moment you're able to calm down and get them or to get yourself to a point where you can explore the dynamics of anger, it's essential that you inquire about what other feelings your words or actions might have induced in them or their words and feelings might have induced in you. Here, the single most important thing you can do is to validate the hurt feelings that probably underlie their unexpected outbreak. I had a conversation with someone who I love dearly uh, just a few days ago. They were very angry and very frustrated with me. And when they first started addressing sort of their anger and frustration with me, my, my initial sort of um, response was to try to defend myself. Yeah, but this and that, and I told you this, and what about that, right? And so I was just defending myself. And then I said, and if you had communicated better, and if you had done this, then blah, 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 right? I wasn't, I wasn't listening to anything they said. I didn't care about their heart. I was just trying to make sure that I was defending myself, right? And that's why part of what he's saying here is the single most important thing you can do, either for yourself or with someone else, is to validate the hurt feelings. And so in the middle of this conversation, I caught myself. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I'm not being loving towards this person. And so I stopped and I said, you know what? Man, I can totally understand why you'd be frustrated with me, right? I, I get it, right? I made you look bad in front of the other person. And if it were me and I were in your shoes, I'd be mad too, right? And I, and I totally understand that you're frustrated about that decision that I made because I know it makes you feel like um, I don't trust you. Like, I'd be mad about that too, and it was amazing as I validated, as um, Seltzer talks about here, as I validated this person's experience of anger and frustration, it was just interesting to sort of watch the temperature decrease, right? And, uh, and the, the heat kind of go down as I validated and said, yeah, I get that, man. I understand exactly why you'd be frustrated. Again, the single most important thing you can do is to validate the hurt feelings that probably underlie their unexpected outbreak. He goes on to say, for their seemingly excessive anger towards you probably stems from old feelings or maybe new feelings related to being disregarded, disrespected, distrusted, devalued, or made to feel powerless, unacceptable, or unlovable. Does that make sense? And so all of a sudden, when you experience someone's anger or you experience your own anger and you realize it's about being disregarded or being disrespected or being distrusted or devalued or, or feeling powerless or unacceptable or unlovable, well, all of a sudden, your need to defend yourself just goes, falls through the floor, right? Because all of a sudden, that's a person who's hurting in front of you, right? And that's part of the reason to remain calm so that you can actually care about your own heart or that person's heart. He goes on to say, and given such an overwhelming impulse on their part to defend their vulnerability, a lot of times anger is to defend the fact that you're afraid or you're fearful through anger, it's finally irrelevant whether what just happened meaningfully links to what happened to them in the past. In other words, that's helpful, but not necessarily all, all that relevant. For the current circumstance might be only coincidentally or peripherally connected to an anger they've possibly suppressed since childhood. And in such cases, though the person's attacking energy is unquestionably directed at you, it really has very little to do with you. One of the things that happens to me is I do a lot of marriage counseling, and I sit there with a husband who's been deeply hurt, a wife who's been deeply hurt. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of tension. And, and one of the things I try to do is just to listen um, as they talk and, again, to validate their feelings. But one of the things that I understand is almost always what ends up happening in marital strife is that there are wounds and there are injuries and there are hurts um, that really happened 20 or 30 years ago, long before the husband and wife ever even met each other. And very often what ends up happening is that the husband uh, 
accidentally triggers that wound in his wife, and his wife you know, responds um, in a way that seems to him to not make sense, or vice versa with the woman. In other words, so often when we have an explosion of anger, it's really ultimately about something in our past, some way in which we were hurt, some way in which we were unloved or unchosen. So again, the reminder of the Proverbs is to remain calm, right, to remain calm. And so let me give you three quick things that I would encourage that you do. When you encounter anger, yours or someone else's, do these three things. And again, there's a thousand other things I could say. Um, But one is, and you can write this down, one is when you encounter anger, yours or someone else's, admit it, right? Call it what it is. (laughs) I know that sounds kind of simple, but call it what it is. And the reason it's important to admit that anger really is anger is because there are a lot of people who grow up in religious contexts like the church where it's wrong to be angry or you think it's wrong to be angry and so you suppress it. And so what ends up happening is you, when somebody says, well, you, are you angry? You go, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? Because you feel embarrassed or ashamed about have, experiencing anger because in your context, it's conceived, seen as wrong. Or you simply say, it's, it's just me. You know, I'm just tired, right? I'm just kind of thin. I'm just sort of down today or whatever. And so you, and instead of admitting that you really feel anger, which is, a, a, again, a legitimate emotion, really own it, right? Because if you don't own the fact that you're angry, then you might miss out on the opportunity to go down deeper to sort of that deeper wound of feeling unchosen, of feeling unloved, of feeling un or disrespected, right? So admit that it's anger, call it what it is. Secondly, analyze it, right? In other words, analyze your anger. And so you can do that in any number of different ways, but one of the things you can do is you can write down your feelings of anger. Like I would totally encourage that. In fact, long before you ever talk to someone when you're angry or tell them why you think they're angry, man, Take five minutes, take 10 minutes, and jot down, think through why it is that you feel angry. Dig down to those deeper emotions and find out what it is in your own heart that's going on. Again, the proverb says, remain calm, right? I would encourage you to pray, right? So part of analyzing your anger is to say, hey, God, I'm so mad right now with my daughter, son, wife, roommate, whoever that person is about this political issue going on. Why am I so angry? Take it and give it to God, right? Maybe after you've done those things, maybe talk to the person who's hurt you. Maybe find someone else to talk to as well. But admit it, analyze it, and then ultimately address it in one way or another. Admit it, analyze it, or address it, all right? Watch out for a short fuse. You will do things you regret, right? And remain calm because, again, anger is a way for you to dig down into your heart or into someone else's heart to find out what's really going on. Okay, second point out of the Proverbs. So again, we beware the danger of short fuse, remain calm, but also part of what the Proverbs does is the Proverbs encourages us to experience the benefits of self-control or the benefits of controlling our anger. Two quick verses. People with good sense restrain their anger. They earn esteem by overlooking wrongs. And so one of the benefits of self-control is that you actually earn respect as you're able to stand in the face of fury or in the face of something that's very hurtful and remain calm, you earn respect. Proverbs 16, 32 says this, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, right? So the ability to control your anger is better than being a mighty warrior or an NFL football player. He goes on to say, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Essentially what the Proverbs argues is the ability to control our temper is the key to living a successful and a healthy life. Now, some of you guys are familiar with Ben Carson. 
Um, so he was a neurosurgeon who uh, ended up being one of the most influential neurosurgeons in his field. Some of you know his story, and uh, his story is that he grew up in a life situation in a home that had all sorts of risks and some brokenness. In his book, um, Take the Risk, he tells a great story about learning to control his temper. I'm going I'm to tell it to you very quickly. But he writes about the day that he invited God to help him with his temper. This is actually, again, from his book called Take the Risk. He says this, One day, as a 14-year-old in ninth grade, I was hanging out at the house of my friend Bob, listening to his radio, when he suddenly leaned over and dialed the tuner to another station. I'd been enjoying the song playing on the first station, so I reached over and flipped it back. Bob switched stations again. A wave of rage welled up. Almost without thinking, I pulled out the pocket knife I always carried, and in one continuous motion, flicked open the blade and lunged viciously right at my friend's stomach, right? Neurosurgeon Ben Carson tried to stab his friend, right? He says this, incredibly, the point of the knife struck Bob's large metal belt buckle and the blade snapped off in my hands. Bob raised his eyes from the broken piece of metal in my hand to my face. He was too surprised to say anything, but I could read the terror in his eyes. I, I, I'm sorry, I sputtered. Then I dropped the knife and ran for home, horrified by the realization of what I'd just done. I burst into our empty house, locked myself in the bathroom, and sank to the floor, miserable and frightened. I could no longer deny that I had a serious anger problem and that I'd never achieved my dream of becoming a doctor with an uncontrollable temper. I admitted to myself there was no way I could control it by myself. Lord, please, you've got to help me, I prayed. Take this temper away. You promised that if I asked anything in faith, you'd do it, and I believe you can change me. He goes on to say, I slipped out and got a Bible. Back on the bathroom floor, I opened the book of Proverbs, the word of Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It's that proverb we just read. Those words convicted me, but also gave me hope. I felt God telling me that although he knew everything about me, he still loved me. That because he made me, he was the only one who could change me, and that he would. Gradually, I stopped crying, my hands quit shaking, and I was filled with the assurance that God had answered my prayer. Part of what we see in that story that Ben Carson tells is that restraining his temper actually gave him the amazing blessing of being able to become the person that he became, but he also acknowledged he didn't do it on his own. It's not just that controlling your anger keeps you from doing things that you'll regret or that controlling your anger prevents you from being self-destructive. Controlling your temper and allowing God access to control your temper makes you a more complete human being, stronger, able to earn the respect of others, and self-controlled, all of which lead to a life well-lived, right? And that's the, the theme of this series. Now, this morning, we have the Lord's Supper. And so you see tables on the right-hand side and left-hand side of the room with bread and wine. And as you're thinking about the Lord's Supper, you may think, well, what does this have to do with my anger? Like, where's the, where's the tie-in? Well, let me, let me tell you what three possible responses you might be having this morning are. One is, as we've talked about this subject of anger, there are some of you in this room, myself included, who are aware of or remember a time or times when you sinned in anger. I could very easily make a, a long list of the times that I sinned in anger. You said something brutal to someone, or you did something to someone that was harmful physically or emotionally, and, and a lot of times it was to someone you loved. 
the Lord's Supper, this bread and wine today, is a declaration that those sins are forgiven, right? That's, that's the message of the Lord's Supper over and over again. Is it doesn't matter how bad that thing you said was or that thing you did was, the blood of Christ is more than enough to cover over all of your sins, past, present, and future. So some of you may be thinking about it this morning. So others of you might have the response that's a little bit different. You've become aware that you've failed to be angry about the things that you should be angry about, about God's name being dishonored, about a parent treating you or your spouse disrespectfully. The list goes on and on, but usually that failure to become angry is, becomes a failure to protect someone that you ought to protect, someone that you ought to love. And again, the Lord's Supper reminds us that those sins, failure to protect, failure to be angry about what angers God's heart, that even those sins can be forgiven. That's, again, what the Lord's Supper reminds you of. As we talk about anger, one final response might be this. As we talk about anger, um, someone in here could respond this morning by being very angry with God. Right? That would be a logical response as well. You might be angry with God because of cancer. You might be angry with God because of divorce. You might be angry with God because of suffering in your life or in the lives of others that you love. You might shake your fist at the heavens and shout out, why did you let that happen? You know, why didn't you do something? God, you have no idea what it's like. There's no way that you could understand. Do you have any idea how much this hurts? The Lord's Supper is God's way of saying, me too, right? I understand, right? I, 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 above all people in the world that love my children, understand anger when I look and see them destroying themselves or harming one another and destroying the humanity that I created in them. Me too, I'm angry about the destructive power of sin in the world and my son came not only to forgive those sins but to make all things new. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that God is angry at sin and he's angry at suffering too. Now let me do this really quickly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a moment, I'm gonna read the words of institution, then I'm gonna pray. But before I do that, let me, let me invite you um, to take time to receive this declaration that if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, that this table of bread and wine, that those declarations are true for you. That God says, I love you. That there's nothing you can do to make me love you any more or any less than I do right now simply because you're my child. This table is a declaration that you're forgiven, either for losing your temper or for not becoming angry enough. You're forgiven. But this declaration is also a reminder that God is with this in you and that he too hates sin and suffering and brokenness so much that he sent his son Jesus in order to redeem and to restore us. We read again the words of 1 Corinthians 11. I'll pray and then I'll invite you to take your time and receive the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you address our whole humanity, um, that you address um, us physically, that you address us relationally, that you address us 
emotionally and vocationally. Father, I pray that um, we would hear the, the words of Scripture as they remind us to trust in you as our good, good Father. Father, I pray that we would uh, hear the words of Scripture as they remind us um, to trust in your Son, Jesus, and his perfect life and death and resurrection on our behalf. Father, I pray this morning, Father, for anyone in this room who somehow doubts your love or, or, um, or doubts that you are willing to forgive or able to forgive them, I pray that this Lord's Supper today, this bread and wine would remind them that you are more than able and more than willing to forgive them for their sins. I pray that that would not only be true for them, I pray that it would be true for me. I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.